Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. You could do a different form of what's called a entity transfer. If it's a disregarded entity, a single asset, only has one piece of property, only has one member, you can actually, instead of selling the real estate out from inside that LLC, sell the LLC itself, and you avoid the reassessment for new taxes and all of that. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest-running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Dave Foster. Dave is joining us from St. Petersburg, Florida. He is the CEO and founder of the 1031 Investor, which helps real estate investors navigate tax saving strategies within the 1031 exchange. Dave's portfolio consists of a residential subdivision, multifamily rentals, single family rentals, and agricultural land investments. Dave, thank you for joining us. And how are you today? I'm doing awesome. As you and I were talking, I forgot to mention that as hot as it is, summer in Florida, if I just go 200 steps to my left, I can cool off about 20 degrees instantly. I get wet, but that's because okay. of the ocean. Exactly. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. Hey, I want to share a story that you probably don't even remember, but best ever listeners, Dave Foster, before we ever worked together, we had interacted because I had a bunch of 1031 questions and this was years ago. And then I got a call from my cousin who needed an emergency appraiser for whatever loan he was doing in Florida. And I called Dave on a Friday evening and Dave picked up his phone and I'm like, Dave, I'm so sorry to bother you. I need an appraiser like right now. And you stopped what you were doing, gave me a couple contacts and you were very helpful to somebody that you had never met, probably didn't even recognize the name, whatever, but very gracious individual. I've since used Dave a number of times on 1031s and he is a wealth of knowledge and one of the pioneers of real estate 1031. So Dave, Thank you again for joining us. And if you would, give the best ever listeners just a bit about your background. All right. Well, I have been what's called a qualified intermediary for 1031 exchanges now for 24 years. So really where I made my niche 
my mark. And I really appreciate that kind memory of yours. I used to think that the mark of a person's life was going to be found in how many people went to their funeral. That's a little too late. So what I decided is I'd rather try to help out a bunch of people now so I can see them and not just have them viewing me. But it's great to be here. 1031 exchanges have been around for over 100 years. The problem is that they're a process managed by the IRS who is not your friend, does not want to help you, and doesn't have the resources to help you even if they did. So what we learned really early on was that the key to growing the whole industry was going to lie in education. And to do education, you got to do it ahead of time. You got to do it proactively. And you've got to give it without expecting something in return. I know there's plenty of gurus out there that would disagree with me and think that what I have, because I picked it up on the internet and created some forums, I should get paid for it. But in my mind, the best education is when it's free and when it's verifiable. Because if it's free, I don't have an agenda. And if it's verifiable, then you know whether it's right or not. So that's where we started. And here we are 24 years later, still educating people. Because it's just not something that everybody knows about. Dave, and I can attest to that. I know dozens of people who have called you just for advice or questions. Now, best ever listeners, when you think about 1031 exchanges, you may think it's really simple, cut and dry, but that's often not the case. And I've had some deals where I've sold properties with partners and whatever I read on the internet told me that I couldn't do a 1031 exchange. And then I heard Dave Foster one day say, if you have a property that you're selling, call me before you hit the closing table and I can most likely figure out a solution for you. So Dave, I think one of the biggest ones is deals that you have partners on. Everything you read on the internet tells you if you have partners, both partners have to do the 1031 together. And that's often difficult when one partner wants to cash out, one doesn't. But you've got solutions for that, right? Yeah, that's an incredibly common scenario, both to have multiple partners, because we all love to share the journeys. And what often starts out as, gosh, what we call it, the honeymoon phase, often ends up in the desire for a divorce. Same thing is true of partners as well. So the opportunity to find the ways to separate that is pretty key if you want to be successful in doing 1031 exchanges. Now, the other side of that is huge rise in what I would call the liability protection game, where attorneys and counselors and advisors everywhere that want to sing the praises of eliminating liability by creating different entities that own your real estate. Now, that's got a practical a practical effect is it separates you from the real estate. But the unintended consequence, particularly from the 1031 perspective, is that that also separates you from the real estate so that now a different entity is actually going to have to be doing the 1031 exchange. And that's kind of what you're getting at there. The way that the rule actually states is that the taxpayer for the old property has to be the same as the taxpayer for the new property. Now, 
for everybody who's read a snippet on the internet that says the property has to be deeded the same way, I've got a question for you. When does the IRS ever see the deed? They don't. Good point. The deed is a state. They see the schedule. Exactly. So if I own an LLC and I'm the only member of that LLC and it has elected to be taxed as a sole proprietor, and I'll bet you've got one or two of these, where's that property reported? It's on my schedule E, isn't it? On my tax returns. Yeah. So who's the taxpayer? I am. The individual. So what's important then is that when we sell, we may be selling as the LLC because that's whose name it's deeded in, but we can buy as ourselves because that's not going to change the tax return that the property is reported on, will it? Now, what's good about that? Financing. Because so many times we've got a ton of people and you do too, that are going into vacation rental game. Well, there is a type of loan out there called the second home loan, where you'll have to take it out in your personal name. But when you do, you're able to get a very preferential interest rate, as well as a lower down payment. And the requirements of a second home loan are simply that the property be at least 100 miles from where you live, and you agree to use it for personal use at least two weeks a year. Neither one of those prevent the property from being treated as investment property. So you get 1031 from a single family rental that you have in an LLC. Use a favorable second home loan to go buy a vacation rental in Port Aransas and get preferential financing, take title in your own name, and you have never violated any of the statutes for 1031, and you are still the same taxpayer. That's how powerful those things can be if you really just take a step back. Dave, what about a multi-member LLC? There we go. So, very classic. You and I and two other members own a building. We're 25% each. You found out about my gambling problem, so you don't (laughs) want to do business with me anymore. I don't know. For whatever reason, we've all decided to separate. There's a couple different ways to do it. Now, a multi-member LLC has to be treated as a partnership, which means it's going to file its own tax return. And then it's going to issue K-1s or partnership forms to each of us, right? Well, let's use the same doctrine. Who's the taxpayer? It's the LLC. Because that's who's reporting the activity of property. So by statute, that LLC has to sell and that LLC has to buy in order to keep the same taxpayer. Well, but that's a problem because you and I don't want to go together anymore. So the first way that we could do it is that we could have the LLC sell the property and then we would go and we would buy four different replacement properties. One that each one of us picked out and it was roughly equal to 25% of the sale. That LLC would take title to all four of those. And then once that's complete, the LLC dissolves and it distributes the properties one to each one of us. And then we go off our merry way. I pay off the loan shark. You go and make a few more million. Everybody's happy. 
The problem with that, as you can imagine, is the complexity. In trying to find four properties that are going to satisfy all of us, what if it doesn't quite equal the full amount? Just all sorts of things. And this is where earlier rather than later comes into play. Because the concept we just talked about is what's called a swap and drop. You swap using the 1031, then you drop the LLC. But there's a process that you can use before you close your sale called a drop and swap. In a drop and swap right before the closing, that LLC is dissolved and the property is quit claimed into each individual member's own ID. So I end up with 25% of that property in my name. You've got 25% in your name. The other two people have 25% in their name. Now we can sell that property and you can choose. Do you want to do an exchange on yours? Because now you're the taxpayer. I can choose. Do I want to do an exchange on mine? I may want to take the cash. You do the exchange. But then we're not impacting each other in how we do it. Now, swap and drops are, well, I'll call them relatively new. But by new, I mean 25 or 30 years. New. And over the course of that 25 or 30 years, we've started to see more and more favorable rulings from the IRS. They're very comfortable with it in terms of trusts now. And there's been some good rulings on LLCs. So these are the types of things that if we have enough time to talk about, then we can involve your accountants and your financial advisors in these discussions to see how comfortable they are. That's how you solve that whole issue of how do we divorce members within an entity. Dave, I had a closing this week where we had to explain drop and swaps, or here in the Midwest, we call them entity transfers. We had to explain this to the bankers, the lawyers, literally lawyers. They had no idea how this works. How much time do you spend educating finance people, bankers, title people? Well, there's actually a lot of smart people out there. And it's the 80-20 rule. I spend 80% of my time with 20% of the people. And the other 80% just get it once you explain it. But we've also done things like we've created a YouTube series that I can steer people to so that they can just replay the video over and over until they get it. But yeah, certainly education is a big deal, but the videos, the book, all this kind of stuff, the face-to-face or phone-to-face appointments, those kind of things are really all it takes. And many times it's just a question of me being able to interpret from 1031Es into accountantees for them to understand. Now, the entity transfer, did you actually do the drop and swap or were you actually selling the entity that owned the asset? I was selling. So the buyers did the drop and swap and they weren't even doing a 1031. They were simply buying, but the drop and swap was too exotic for the attorneys and the banks. And they finally got it done. But initially, they did you finally just sell the entity that owned it, transfer the membership? I honestly don't know. This was the same title company I've used for 20 years. So I trust whatever they did was correct. Because that's actually another really sweet hack. Because an LLC, again, that only has one member, is what we call a disregarded entity. Doesn't file a tax return. You're the taxpayer. 
But many times when we sell real estate, think about what's involved in selling a piece of real estate. You've got title insurance. You've got transfer tax. You've got closing costs, all these sorts of things. You could do a different form of what's called a entity transfer. And if it's a disregarded entity, a single asset only has one piece of property, single member only has one member, you can actually, instead of selling the real estate out from inside that LLC, you sell the LLC itself and you avoid the reassessment for new taxes and all of that. All that would happen is if I was going to buy that from you, is I end up owning the LLC that owned the real estate. So that could be a pretty powerful way to do that. That's going to save you a lot of money. To answer your question, no, we did not sell the LLC. They actually did the drop and swap. But the concern with that is what if I have some lurking liabilities? I've got a pending lawsuit, let's say, and they buy that LLC. They're inheriting potential liabilities for me as well, right? Yep, they sure are. That's the one problem with something like that. So what you have to do okay. is you have to weigh the cost savings of simply buying the real estate versus the liability that you accept by taking ownership of the LLC. Got it. Yes. And for best ever listeners that don't really understand this, it's really just a split second that that entity is going into this other entity, right? It's kind of like a bit of smoke and mirrors to get the transaction done. It's not actually smoke and mirrors. It's actually physically done that way, but it can be done in an order that it happens in seconds. Like in the old days when title companies used to have to go to the courthouse to record deeds, they would simply hand the deeds, changing it from the LLC to the partners. And then five seconds later, they would hand them the deed, selling it from the partners to the ultimate buyer. It has to be done in the right order. But yeah, it's done almost simultaneously. What's the craziest, most exotic problem presented to you that you were able to find a solution for? It's actually a problem of my own making. How about that? So <laughs> there was a piece of land that I couldn't resist. Don't we all know how that goes, right? So my partner and I, we bought it. And then we realized, well, gosh, we're going to pay tax on this crazy because we were going to convert it into another subdivision we were doing. And by the time we did the lots, did the infrastructure, sold the lots, we were going to have to take what was a capital gain and turn it into ordinary income. And there was going to be a massive tax bill over years. So what we did was we took the property and before we turned to shovel on it, we did a concept called land banking. Now, we were in an LLC, and we sold that to an S-corporation. The S-corporation was us as members, but it's two different entities, two different tax returns, two different tax structures. And we sold it to them at a very high price per lot. They paid for it so that we could do a 1031 exchange on our sale. So we did a 1031 exchange. We bought some multifamily assets. That part's down the road, right? What did we own after that? Well, we owned an S corporation with a ton of really expensive lots. So when we sold those lots to builders, 
We made somebody, but we didn't make nearly as much as we could have if we wouldn't have paid so much for those lots. So by the time we wrote in our expenses and all of that, the land banking actually ended up producing four or $500,000 in tax savings. But it took us about several months to get those pieces together. Several months and several very expensive attorneys. How often does the IRS actually audit a 1031? Well, there's a funny saying in the industry that every 1031 exchange is GTA, which just stands for good till audited. And there's a lot of people out there that are very comfortable because the audit rates are very low. 1031s are not an audit trigger. If they audit you because there's something new and different, they will always look at your 1031 exchange, but it's not going to trigger an audit. So they're not looked at very often. So we are left with this whole thing where I'd almost rather ask that these were heavily scrutinized because then we would know for sure what was right, what was not, how it needed to be. But instead, we're left with a lot of gray to work on. So we rely heavily on case law, precedent, and quite a bit on the doctrine that sometimes it's better to ask forgiveness than it is permission. Now, when I say that, I never, ever advocate doing something you know to be wrong because you can get away with it. But that's a huge difference between that and always doing something you know to be right, even if it's going to be questioned. The IRS might disagree with you, but that's okay if you've got a sound legal reason for doing it. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you thinking about investing in multifamily real estate? Need some insight on how it's done? On the Small X podcast, multifamily investor Nico Salgado interviews the top multifamily investors in the nation to uncover the secrets and strategies behind their success. He also features newer multifamily investors chronicling their journeys for a full year so you can learn alongside other investors. Nico believes that it only takes a small axe to build an empire. So if you're ready to build your multifamily empire, check out the Small Axe Podcast with Nico Salgado on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Dave, the advice that I often give people that I mentor is that whenever you're going to sell a property, always 1031. Even if you don't have the next property lined up. Now, ideally, you have the next one lined up before you sell, but always pay the intermediary to 1031. If you find that great deal, you can avoid paying the taxes. 
what's the typical cost on doing a 1031? Do you remember my lottery ticket analogy I think I talked about last time with you? Vaguely. It'll come back to me yeah. if you tell me again. So a garden variety 1031 exchange is maybe going to cost you thousand bucks or a little bit less. Okay, tax savings of thirty or forty thousand dollars are pretty conceivable on a hundred and twenty thousand dollar profit. So what I tell people is if I'm selling you lottery tickets that cost a thousand bucks, but they have a ninety percent, and why ninety is that over ninety percent of our clients that start 1031s will complete them successfully. So even if you don't have the properties lined up, even if you're scared, even if there's some uncertainty with the market, I'm selling you a lottery ticket for a thousand bucks that has a 90% chance of winning 40,000. How many do you want to buy? Dude, I'd be selling my car and my kids to buy yeah. as many as I could. So Dave, I'm sure you see this too, but that's one of the most common education pieces that I run into. The other one is I'll just pay the taxes. No big deal. What are you going to do? You're going to keep buying real estate forever and keep 1031ing? Yes. I don't think people really grasp how to win the 1031 game. Oh my gosh. No, you are so absolutely right. Yeah. The argument is often, look, in 20 years, I'm not going to want to keep doing this. Awesome. In 20 years, when you want to get out of the game, go buy a Starbucks with a 10-year lease left on it. Park all your money in it. Do a cash out refi so you've got all your cash that you're able to spend. And then whenever you pass, your heirs get that last Starbucks at a stepped up basis. Now, let's say you live longer than five or six years. Perfect. Sell that Starbucks, buy another one with a fresh 10-year lease. Keep doing that until you're left with one piece of real estate that's a triple net property, great company, mailbox money. You're essentially out of the real estate game and you avoided paying the snowball of taxes. Oh my gosh. I had the most mind blowing experience a couple of weeks ago when I was talking to someone about this and I am going to remember this the rest of my life because if ever I need to pinch my ego, this memory will bring it back. So we got into this whole thing almost 30 years ago because I bought a duplex in Denver and fixed it up and sold it. And I didn't know about 1031s. And my tax bill was over $30,000. Okay, so that ticked me off. That's what caused us to go into this. But this is what someone challenged me. I go, Dave, what do you say to that person who says, I'm going to have to pay it anyways down the road. So why not just pay it now? Well, all of a sudden it hit me. That $30,000 in tax that I paid that year, here we are 30 years later. If I would have continued to defer it till now, and it was making 10% a year, like real estate has a tendency to do, that is literally almost $100,000 that I gave away. Whether or not I want to take it to the grave, every year that I kept that, was $3,000 that could have been in my pocket instead of in the federal government's. That's the real power. Every day you keep it deferred is a day you're making the money. And here I am looking back 30 years going, if I just would have 1031 that sucker, I got an extra six figures in my bank account. 
That's how powerful it is. And you're absolutely right. The opportunities to 1031 from any type of real estate to any type of real estate, from anywhere in the country to anywhere in the country, from any situation you find yourself to any other situation, from active to passive, from passive to more passive, and then to finally ultimately die so that your heirs get it tax-free. Yeah, sign me up for that. Yeah, working with you, I sold a single-family house and a smaller strip mall, and that enabled me to buy a much larger strip mall. I would have had to pay six figures in taxes had I not done that. So it's a very powerful tool for anybody who's not convinced. Do the math. Do the numbers. Seriously, think through this. Even if you don't end up holding it forever, fine. Tell yourself when you turn 75 years of age, you're going to pay the taxes. But then do the math on continuing to roll it and never paying the taxes. It's an absolute game changer. And there's no minimum. I think it was a $200,000 house that I sold. And I 1031 that. It was a half million dollar strip mall that I sold. 1031 that into a $5 million strip mall. So even if it's a very small single family house and you're making a killing on it, by all means, 1031 it. Yeah, $100,000 profit, 20000 in tax. Would you rather make 2000 a year off of that? What's cool, your scenario that you're talking about is exactly why this was put into the tax code in 1920. Because they wanted to see agribusiness grow and farmers who were trying to scale up, if they sold their farms and paid the tax, would not have enough money left for the down payment on the bigger farm. Sound familiar? It took both of those sales and the tax to get into that larger strip center. So 1031 allowed them to use the tax to do that. So the people that bought your small multifamily and bought your house, probably those people are beginning investors. And that was their entree into investing. You not only allowed yourself to grow, but you made room for someone else to enter. And you know why the federal government really likes it, even though they talk like they don't? Because for every bit of capital gains tax they give up, okay, they do. They give up some capital gains. They get on every transaction, ordinary income tax on two realtors, two title companies, two painters, two appraisers, two attorneys. They make a ton of money off of ordinary income. Know who they don't get money from? You. Because you did the 1031. Now, speaking of the politics, Dave, the 1031 is often used as a weapon for negotiating bills. My opinion on that is there's no way they can ever close Pandora's box. It would absolutely cripple the economy. If people had to stop 1031-ing, it would decimate commercial real estate. Your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. For exactly what we talked about right there. The best way to not have to pay tax if there's no way to 1031 is you don't sell the property. If you don't sell the property, who's going to buy it? Who's going to sell it? The whole industry goes away. I've kind of, I'm jaded. I get it because I've been in this for so long. Every president I've ever been under has talked about getting rid of 1031. None of them do it. And finally, in this administration, they not only talked about it when he was running for office, They talked about it in his first budget, and now they're talking about it in his second budget. 
So either they learn real slow because everybody else is given, as a matter of fact, the Senate last time around unanimously voted to protect 1031 exchange. Unanimously. That's Democrats, Republicans alike. So I don't know whether this administration is just slow to read the room or what I really think is probably happening is that it's a throwout offer. They're not going to get rid of 1031. They have no intention, but they're throwing it out there just to get people distracted by that so they can get what they really want in play. I don't see it going anywhere at all. I'm with you. Dave, the last question that I really have, and this might be a bit of a rabbit hole, is you see syndicators that will accept 1031 money in, and I'm assuming they're using tenants in common to do that. The understanding is it's an expensive process to do that. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Because ideally, if you're raising capital, you would love to take somebody's 1031 money because they're looking to deploy capital quickly. Yeah, absolutely. You sure would. This goes actually all the way back to the very beginning where we were talking about the taxpayer. So in a syndication, the limited partnership that is formed to take title to the land is the taxpayer for that property because it files its own tax return. And then all of the limited partners get partnership returns. They get K-1s, partnership shares, and that kind of thing. What those investors own is an interest in an entity that owns real estate. They don't own the real estate. So they can't 1031 into it because they're not buying real estate. More importantly, or as importantly, they can't 1031 out of it because they're not selling real estate. So those syndicators that either have deep enough pockets to do these things for cash, or they have a lending structure where their lender is kind enough to let them do this, or they will carve off a portion. Like say your $5 million building. If someone had $500,000 in 1031 money, you could sell them 10% of that building. Well, now there's two owners to the building. There's your limited partnership syndication, and there's the 1031 investor. You each own real estate. So they're able to 1031 in because they buy real estate. And when you sell it, they can 1031 out because they're selling real estate. It's really a pretty cool thing. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. It was a bit of a mystery to me until you just explained it. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yes, it makes perfect sense. Having ownership in an LLC is one thing. It's a syndication, but actually owning the real estate is what makes the 1031 legit. Exactly. Now, there's a couple different ways that 1031 investors can invest in syndications. We can talk about that for a minute if you'd like. Let's go. So the easiest way is obviously what we talked about right there. If the syndication can carve off a percentage of the real estate. So we've talked about that. If the investor wants to do a 1031 exchange, they have to sell real estate, buy real estate. So maybe what they do is they go and they find a replacement property that's going to generate neutral or better cash flow, but it concentrates their equity so that as soon as they close on that property, they then do a cash out refinance. Cash out refinances are not taxable. So take the cash out refinance money and use that to invest in your syndication. You still have your 1031 intact, but you also have this cash that doesn't have anything to do with it. 
that's now working for you in this indication. I think that's really important to demystify as well, because the other argument that I've heard a lot is I want the cash. I've got so much equity in this deal. When I sell it, I want the cash. And it's like, okay, you could have cashed out refied ahead of time and then still done the sale. Now, granted, when you sell, you're not allowed to touch the money that you're going to get from the deal. But in your new property, if you've got a ton of equity, by all means, do a cash out refi and there's all your cash. I don't think it, people always yeah. grasp that. Here's how it can work in real life. What I call defensive investing anyways. You've got a property for $400,000. You got 300000 in equity. It's just burning a hole in your pocket. So you sell and do a 1031 exchange. You go buy a property for $250,000 cash, free and clear. Now, you completed a 1031 doing that, and you now have a property with no debt. So you're protected from market risk, right? Just keep the lights on. You're never going to lose it. 2008 never has to worry you again, all those sorts of things. Take the other 50000 and go buy a property for $250,000 using the 50000 as a down payment. So did I purchase at least as much as I sold? Yep. Did I use all my cash? Yep. Do I have a property that's free and clear that I can now refinance and use that money however I want? Yep. Do I have a property over here that's still getting the benefit of leverage and whatever arbitrage there is on that? I sure do. And now I've got two sources of, actually three sources of income because I've got the two rental properties and I've got the syndication. Dave, I got to ask you, you just wrote a book. Is part of that because you probably answer the same questions over and over again every day? You know, I never thought that I was supposed to write a book. That was not on my radar screen. As a matter of fact, I understand why it wasn't after eight years now that it took. I wrote the book and I thought what I was writing was a manual on how to do 1031 exchanges. Paint by the numbers, which because we do get the same questions quite a bit. But when it was all said and done, I realized that the burning desire that I had was to have people look at 1031 exchanges, not just as this tool to do, but as a vehicle to find your dream and achieve it. I don't know if that sounds too lofty or not, but that's what we did. We used the 1031 exchange and the primary residence exemption almost exclusively and managed to buy a 53-foot sailboat, live on it for 10 years, raise four boys, and never pay a penny in real estate tax. And we lived off of the real estate investments that we had. So our dream was the sailboat the vehicle was the 1031 exchange. And by the time it was all said and done, I went, that's right. I just wrote how people can use this as a vehicle to reach their dreams. Dave, what is the book called? Lifetime Tax-Free Wealth. Because even when you die, it goes to your ears tax-free. Lifetime Tax-Free Wealth, the Real Estate Investor's Guide to the 1031 Exchange. Who's the target audience for that? Just like there's no such thing as a too small 1031. <laughs> Anybody that is interested in real estate investing and wants to do anything besides just build and sell homes or fix and flip. And even then, 
I try my best. I've got a couple chapters in there on how to change the model of fix and flipping so that you quit paying all those gosh darn taxes and turn it into 1031 qualifying property. For my own curiosity, I've got to ask you this question. You are insanely accessible. It's very easy to get Dave Foster on the phone or email. And I know you've got a team that handles the intermediary part. What do you spend most of your day on? Is it answering questions? Literally, most of my day is strategizing with people. That's what I love to do. Do you remember the old podcast, The Eventual Millionaire? This is long in the tooth. The Eventual Millionaire. I was listening to it probably 15, 17 years ago. And a guy came out, a very successful entrepreneur. And his advice just burned into my brain. He said, if you want to have your business be successful, only do what you love and not one thing more in that business. And here's why. If you are having to do things you don't love, for me, that's paperwork. If you're having to do that, you're going to burn out and you'll suck at it. And he's right. If I try to do paperwork, I'm an accountant who's bad about math. But I can sure help you strategize on the 1031. So we have just tried to separate me so that I'm available to talk to people like you, people that are thinking about selling. Again, it goes all the way back to education is the key. And so we're yeah. going to pay that price. And again, I wish I had known what you said earlier, which was call me if you're selling a property and you want a 1031 we can figure out a solution. <laughs> There's been so many times where I just assumed because one partner wanted the 1031, one didn't, right. that it was not possible. So I left a lot of money in Uncle Sam's pocket because of that. Yeah, uh, You know what? Nobody ever went broke paying tax on profits, though. You're right. It just feels like it. Yeah. Well, Dave Foster, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? We've structured our entire web presence to make me accessible to you. If they go to the1031investor.com. We've got the YouTube series, access to the book and access to a calendar to set appointments with myself or my team, whoever's going to be most appropriate. The1031investor.com. Dave, as always, thank you for always being a trusted advisor, a friend. You're one of the pioneers of the 1031 in real estate. So thank you for your time today. Good being with you as always. We're having a good run, aren't we? We are. Thank you again. Best ever listeners. Thank you for joining us as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.